Father, we come into collision with the words of Jesus today. Hard sayings. Tough like steel. I pray, Lord, that these hard sayings would not send anyone away today, but that all might reach repentance and be drawn in. That we would say, like Peter said so many years ago, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Come now, make this word live in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Trusting that you have your Bibles open to John chapter 6, we'll begin right away. Uh, It's page 891 in the Red Bibles, John chapter 6, 891 in those Red Bibles in the seats. The Gospel of John, the Gospel according to John, is remarkable for being remarkable for some remarkably long chapters. John chapter 1, 51 verses. John chapter 4, 54 verses. John chapter 11, 57 verses. And yet when it comes to length, when it comes to sheer tonnage of verse count, nothing beats chapter 6. This is the longest one. 71 verses. And what's even more amazing than the number of verses is that all of them, all 71 of them, are one seamless garment. This is all one cloth that we do not want to render asunder. They all tell one story, seriously, from from the feeding of the 5,000 to Jesus walking on water and then the, the teaching, the discourse that happens after that. One single sustained portrait. Chapter six is about one thing. And here's that thing. John chapter 6 teaches us that following Jesus is a multi-sensory enterprise that demands our eyes, our ears, and even our mouths. Following Jesus is a multi-sensory enterprise that demands our our eyes, our ears, and even our mouths. 71 verses. But for your help and mine, just two points today. Six subpoints, granted. But only two main points. Here's the first point. Jesus is saying to all of his disciples here today, believe my works so that you may know that I am one with God. Believe my works, W-O-R-K-S, works that you may know that I am one with God. In John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, Jesus speaks these following words to the Jewish leaders who are gathered around him and they are prepared to stone him to death. He says in John 10, 37 and 38, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. 
Jesus is saying the same thing to his disciples today. Believe my works that you may know that I am one with God. Well, let's see these works. Follow along with me and I'll read the account of the the feeding of the 5,000. Gospel of John, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that... Nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay. By the time you get to chapter 6, Jesus is finding it increasingly difficult to have uh, time alone, (laughs) and even time with his chosen 12. Verse 2 says, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw the sign in chapter 4 where Jesus heals the official son. Uh, Last week, Jesus healed the disabled man at the pool called Bethesda, and I suspect that there were other healings that John doesn't, doesn't mention here. Jesus is garnering a following. According to verse 10, there are 5,000 men following Jesus in chapter 6. That's just men. That doesn't include women and children, and there were a lot of those. That was just about this time last year that we studied this account in the Gospel of Mark, if you remember our Advent series about 12 months ago, which to me is like yesterday. So we won't dwell long here except to point out that Jesus performs a miracle and according to chapter 10, verse 38, we know why he did it. In Jesus' words, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In other words, believe my works so that you know that I am one with God. Interestingly, The people do recognize this as a miracle in verse 14. They saw the sign that he had done. And yet verse 15 explains that Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force and make him a king, so he withdraws again to the mountain by himself. 
don't draw from this the conclusion that Jesus is not a king. He's a king. It's just that he will be in charge of when he is coronated. Jesus is the king of the universe, but no one is going to rush his crowning. Before the crown comes a cross, the path upwards for Jesus is downward. If he's going to be the giver of life, he must first taste death. He will not be made a king any other way, especially not by the force of sinful people. So he removes himself. And as the day draws to a close, John picks up the narrative for us in verse 16. Same day, a few hours later. Let's look at the next miracle. John 6, starting in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. (laughs) When we think of this miracle, I don't know about you, I tend to think, He's walking on water. That's not the disciples' reaction. The disciples' reaction to the miracle is a far more accurate depiction of what it might be like to actually watch Jesus do this in the dark. Verse 19, John says, they were frightened. He should know he was in the boat. The accounts of Matthew and Mark's gospels tell us that They thought they'd seen a ghost. That's the reason for their panic. King James calls it an apparition. That's the reason for the panic. Although John doesn't say that here. And it's not until Jesus says what he does in verse 20 that the mood begins to soften and begins to change. You notice that? Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Between you and me, Some commentators don't take the it is I to be a very big deal. I do. I think it's huge. Because did you know that you could translate it is I with the little phrase, I am? It's the first time he says it in John's gospel. It's far from the last. There are seven I am statements in John's gospel. And before we're done with our study of this book, we're going to learn that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection in the life, the way, the truth in the life, the true vine. And even here in chapter 6, we have the first official I am statement in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Add to that that this formula, I am is the personal name that God chose for himself to reveal himself to Moses at the burning bush. Exodus 3.14, he says to Moses, I am who I am. That's my name. So notice, it's not until Jesus speaks that what he does falls into context. 
cuts a category in their minds for what he's doing. I think it's incredibly important for us to remember. Jesus' works are a picture of his divinity. But Jesus' words are the caption below the picture that explains what the picture's all about. Jesus' works tell a story. They're a narrative of sorts. But only Jesus' words provide the authoritative footnotes for what's going on in the story. I hope you believe the works. I hope you believe that Jesus fed five thousand men with five loaves and two fish i hope you believe that he walked on water i do i sure do jesus is saying to all of his disciples here believe my works so that you may know that i am one with god here's the thing you can believe in jesus works without believing in his words And in many ways, the second thing we have to note is far more important than the first point today. The second point is that Jesus is saying to all of his disciples here today, believe, you know the blank, believe my words. Believe my words that you yourself may become one with God. Believe my words that you yourself may become one with God. Let's revisit those words of Jesus in John 10, 37 and 38 one more time. Jesus says in John 10, 37 and 38, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now here's the kicker. He's talking to people that are getting ready to stone him. They don't believe his words at all. And he's pleading with them to at least believe his works. And none of us came here with stones today, I trust. We've come to worship Jesus today, not stone him. We believe he fed the 5,000. We believe he walked on water. We believe Jesus works, and that's really good. We should believe his works. But I'm telling you right now that that is the tip of the iceberg with Jesus. Compared to Jesus' words, his works are easy to believe. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Abiding in Jesus' words, staying with his words, even when it begins to get rough, and his words begin to provoke you or upset you or rub you the wrong way, The mark of a true disciple is that you hang in there with him. Listen to him and believe what he says. Remember, following Jesus is a multi-sensory enterprise and it demands far more than our eyes. What we find when we come to Jesus is that our ears and our mouths struggle more than our eyes do. And if you'd question that, I'd like to 
to show us six applications of what I'm talking about. Six applications designed to push and to press us by the power of the Holy Spirit to go deeper into a more profound Christian discipleship as we listen to Jesus' words and believe them. Here's the first word. Here's the first truth for application. First, faith is a work, not just a wish. Faith is a work, not just a wish. I'll pick up our text in verse 20 and read through verse 29. No, I won't in verse 20. How about 22? On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea, saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which, is, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. I hope you ponder verse 29. There's a whole lot to ponder in chapter 6, but I hope you ponder at least verse 29. If you understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ rightly is that you are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, I trust that the discussion between the followers of Jesus in verses 28 and 29 and Jesus himself shocks your sensibilities at least a little bit. If it doesn't, it may be that you haven't pondered it long enough. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. They ask him, what work must we do? He says, I'll tell you what work you can do. Believe. Believe in him whom God has sent. On the one hand, this truth is so close. To, it is what Paul says in Romans 3.28. Paul says it another way in Romans 3.28 with law court language. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And of course, our response to that is yes. Amen. We are justified. Faith alone justifies. But the faith that justifies is never alone. Never. While Jesus is clearly saying that the ground of our acceptance before a holy God is believing the one whom he has sent, it's also true that Jesus says faith is a work. Faith without works is dead. Another way to say it is that Jesus refuses to separate the root of faith from the fruit of faith. Can't do it. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you, believe, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And remember the theme verse of John's gospel, John 20, 31. We've memorized this one in, in our house. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. Faith is not simply believing that certain things about Jesus are true. It is that, and it's more. It's so much more. Faith is trust that transforms you. That's my definition of faith these days. Faith is trust in Jesus that completely transforms you. Faith is a work. It's not just a wish. Do you believe this? Second application. Seeing is not the essence of believing. Seeing is not the essence of believing. I'll start in verse 30 and take it to verse 36. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All I want to do with this point is just encourage you. I, I really want to encourage you right now. If you do not believe this, it will not encourage you. But note what Jesus says here in verse 36. To the people observing him in his flesh and blood ministry in the first century. You have seen me. And yet do not believe. Some of us here imagine that it would be easier to believe in Jesus if he were bodily visible today and living in the West Tonka area somewhere. Just, just be easier to believe in Jesus. Seriously. For some of us today, this is the temptation. And yet what does verse 36 say? Plain as day. There were plenty of people in the first century that saw him. He didn't believe him. They didn't believe, including many of the people he was talking to in verse 36. We must never forget what Jesus said to doubting Thomas in John 20, 29. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. Who's that? That's us. That's us, friends. We are just like those the Apostle Peter addressed in his first epistle. It's got to be one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, don't, don't get the wrong idea with this point. We want to see Jesus. That's one of the hallmarks of the free church. We're a, 
Jesus is coming back kind of people. We love talk like that. We look forward to seeing him. We ache to be with him physically, visibly, bodily. I think about that every time we lose a precious saint in this church to Jesus. I just think heaven's filling up. I trust he's gone to prepare a place for me and for you. But that's where I want to be with him. We are away. Gordon's home. Virginia's home. We ache to be with him. It's just that by Jesus' own admission, even his own return to this earth won't create faith. It's just going to demonstrate the faith that was there or wasn't there. He says at one point, I don't have the reference here, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? He wouldn't have said that if he weren't going to find a truckload of unbelief. So Jesus' return to this earth will not create faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. Seeing is not the essence of believing. Do you believe this? Third application. God, not self, is sovereign in salvation. God, not self, is sovereign in salvation. All I'm going to do here is read the words of Jesus. They are plenty divisive all on their own. They don't need any help from me. This is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ in verses 37 to 40. Then I'm going to hop down to 44. Then I'll read 63 and 65. I'm doing this because they're all on message. Jesus says, starting in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of whom who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 36, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. What do all these words have in common? You know what they have in common? They all teach us that God, not self, is sovereign. In salvation. It's God the Father who gives us over to God the Son, verse 37. It's God the Father who draws us to the Son, verse 44. It's God the Father who grants us to come to the Son in the first place, verse 65. It is God the Father's will that none should be lost, verse 39. And it's God the Son who promises that's just how it's going to happen in verse 40. I will raise him up. On the last day. And Jesus' summary statement of all of this is in verse 63. It's so clear. Actually, it's not clear because the ESV changed the translation on us. <laughs> Parenthesis. The English Standard Version is the best, in my mind, English translation to preach from. But it's a translation that's in flux. The committee meets together every few years and they revise here and there little pieces that they believe will make it more faithful to the original text of the Bible. And this is one of those places. Verse 36, the 
old ESV says no help at all, I think. And the one that we heard read from us says no avail. Anyway, it, it just, it's not a big deal. It just destabilizes the text a little bit. And that's why there's a difference there. I think they say the same thing. Okay. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So I, I don't care what you call that theology. It doesn't matter to me what name you slap on the top of God is sovereign and salvation. I don't care what you call it. I just care that you believe it. We call it different things sometimes. That's, that's not the issue. It changes everything to believe that God is sovereign over your salvation. It changes everything about your evangelism. And the reverse is true too. It defiles everything when we believe that God is not sovereign in these things. When we don't affirm what Jesus affirms about the Father here in these verses, we end up with a God of our own making, lowercase g. A God who waits for us to give ourselves over to the Son. A God, lowercase g, a Christ, rather, who makes no such promises toward raising us up on the last day. A vision of the Holy Spirit that is impotent before our mighty flesh that might be of some help after all in the final analysis. It's not true. Praise God it's not true. God, not self, is sovereign in salvation. This gives you hope for the family members that you will meet this Thursday and throughout the holidays. God can save them. Salvations of the Lord. Fourth application. Eternal life is a present possession, not just a future possibility. Eternal life is a present possession, not just a future possibility. We won't linger here except to read the verse so that you see it. Uh, Seth Brickley did an outstanding job showing us several weeks ago from John chapter 3 why this is so. Let's see it here in John 6.47 anyway because it's so wonderful. Jesus says in John 6.47, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me has eternal life. Plain as day. If you're a Christian, if you're a real Christian, you don't have to wait till the end of your life to start tapping into your inheritance. That's that's wonderful. Uh, Don Carson observes that for the believing Christian, quote, their immediate inheritance and possession is everlasting life. It's your immediate possession. It's your immediate inheritance. You can begin enjoying it now if you are a Christian. Don't you want to be a Christian? You can be. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus. You feel something pushing you toward Jesus, wooing you toward Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. He's drawing you in. You're a goner. Give your life to him. Submit to him. Yield to him. Put your faith in him. Trust him and watch that trust transform you, every part of you. Which is what brings us to our next application. True discipleship involves savoring Jesus Christ, not just saying he's your Lord and Savior. True discipleship involves savoring Jesus, not just saying he's your Lord and Savior. How many of us would be more than a little alarmed if we heard someone share their testimony of coming to faith, something along these lines? 
Well, I started eating and drinking Jesus about seven years ago. I have been feeding on Christ's flesh ever since. I've drunk his blood all this time. That's how I know I've stayed the course with him up to this point. That may sound odd to you. No more odd than Jesus' words in verses 51 to 58. Listen to this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. You hear these words? This language is the language of cannibalism. I thought about other words to call it. I don't think there's another word for it. I grope for another word. There is no other word. That's why people are so freaked out about what he's saying to them. Well, they grumble with each other. Verse 42 How can this man give us his flesh to eat? He knows they're offended. So, you know what he does? He pushes in even harder and turns up the volume. His language gets more frank and raw, not less. (laughs) Why all these strange cannibalistic categories? Why not just faith? Well, the long answer to that question is tonight at 6 o'clock. The Praise and Pie sermon is entitled, Not by Bread Alone. Spiritual food and drink in the Bible. Please come back tonight to hear the long answer. But the short answer is that true discipleship involves savoring Christ, not just savoring him. Relishing Christ, not just responding to him. Enjoying Jesus, not just acknowledging Him. Cherishing Christ, not just choosing Him. Why all this sensational, cannibalistic language? Because true discipleship involves savoring Christ, not just saying He's your Lord and Savior. Final application. Christ's design includes tares, T-A-R-E-S, tares among his people, not just wheat. Christ's design includes tares among his people, not just wheat. Drop down to the final two verses in the chapter, verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke. 
of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We all know Judas. We don't name our kids Judas. His name is synonymous with infamy. He betrays the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. He's the only disciple from the 12 who drops out and hands Jesus over to the authorities. And then he commits suicide. And here's what's so mind-boggling. Jesus chose him for the job. Did I not choose you? One of the 12? Did I not choose a devil? What does that mean? Minimally, it means that the wheat grows up with the weeds, and the weeds grow up with the wheat. Until Jesus returns, by his design, there will always be tares among the wheat. And you say, why? I think the answer is probably for another sermon. But I do know this. Christ's design includes tares among the wheat. Do you believe it? Or do you take offense? That's the way Jesus asks it. Verses 60 to 62 and also verse 66 as we close. When many of his disciples heard it, namely the last six bullet points that you've just heard, actually the first five, he adds number six at the end. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. Flesh is no help at all. And then verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus' words are tougher than steel. They are harder than flint. I don't think a church that has a little group of people on Sunday has any explaining to do in the 21st century. I wonder about casts of thousands, though, sometimes. Do you take offense? Most did. And most do. Or do you take heart? Verses 67 to 69, Jesus turns to the twelve. Everyone's walking away. And Jesus says, do you want to go away too? And the best answer in the whole text, none other than Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, To be a Christian is to be involved in a collision, tough truths. But where else are you going to go? You're going to leave Jesus? Take heart. Believe in him. Following Jesus is a multi-sensory enterprise that demands our ears, our eyes, our mouths. 
He's saying to all of us here, believe my works so that you may know that I am one with God. And he is saying to all of us here today, believe my words that you yourself may be one with God. Here are those words. Faith is a work, not just a wish. Seeing is not the essence of believing. God, not self, is sovereign in salvation. Eternal life is a present possession, not a future possibility. True discipleship involves savoring Christ, not just saying he's your Lord and Savior. Christ's design includes tares among his people, not just wheat. Tonight, 6 p.m., praise and pie with our friends from Calvary. And we'll pick it up then. Right now, let's pray. Lord Jesus, our desire is to be faithful to your word and, and not just uh, faithful to your works and not even just to say that certain things are true. It's not enough just to have the sword of the Spirit. We want to be people that exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. We want to treasure and delight in your word, tough as it is sometimes. We pray that you would more and more create unity around your truths, Lord Jesus, around your words. Lord, no matter how we formulate different doctrines, Lord, in the free church, we have a very noble heritage of standing on the Bible together and not flinching when the language gets difficult. So I pray that we would love all 71 verses of John 6. And Lord, bring us back tonight to hear some really encouraging stuff about you as our food and drink. For Jesus' sake, amen.